Good morning. Indeed, the war goes on, the cosmic war. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord God, that his sacrifice, his willingness to shed his blood, to give his life, settled the score forever as to who wins in the hearts and souls of men, who wins in this battle over creation, Father God. And I thank you that today you'll give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to be strong and brave. Lord God, that you'll answer our questions, giving us understanding. Lord God, that the enemy will not be able to get in to bite, divide, devour, destroy, or deceive us through mischief or misunderstanding, Lord God. I pray, Lord Jesus, now that you would lead us by your spirit and by your truth to cause this recording, this uh, testimony to your truth, to bring forth much fruit in the kingdom of God. We also plead the blood of Jesus against the powers of the air, the prince of the power of the air, the principalities of darkness that have stationed themselves against us. Lord God, you promise that no weapon formed against us will prosper, that no word said, no deed done, no action taken will be able to be used by the enemy to bring forth any shame, trouble, or reproach. So we pray today for divine covering and protection over all of us, our families, those who work for us and pray for us and love us, and those who are yet to come to you who do not even know about you yet, that they will be brought by your Holy Spirit, guided by your Spirit, by your heart, by your love, into the fullness of the, con- of the understanding of the revelation of Jesus Christ, and that you are the faithful witness. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today on Rescue Radio. I'm soloing today. Uh, But I want to talk to you a little bit just to give you a heads up real quick about this coming Saturday before we go to the end of the show when some of you have gone away. That on Saturday the 8th uh, in in, uh, Dayton, Minnesota, which is a suburb of Minneapolis, uh, we're going to be doing a workshop called The Story uh, of the Sun and the Serpent. And so we are going to be offering you, that's free, by the way, from uh, 10 to 3, uh, no admission, but of course you're able to stay and purchase things and ask questions. We're going to be talking about this war that goes on between God and Satan for the souls of men that has been going on before, before, ever, ever, before we even knew the, about the war in the very, very, very beginning and all the way through. We're taking some of the highlights of um, out of the books of Joshua, Jubilees, Enoch, et cetera, et cetera. So you're welcome to come. Just join us. Uh, you can register. Uh, go to the website, liferecovery.com. Okay. Let's look. We're continuing our talk today, our discovery, if you will, of God's war and why Jesus had to die on the cross. This is part two. Part two we're calling the blood war, the cosmic battle over the blood and who won. And uh, to understand the trail of blood, uh, the, the significance of blood, because if we don't understand how life connects with the blood and all of that connects with sin and how death and, and the requirement of sin, the wages of sin is death, how that all is paid for through the blood of, of Jesus Christ. If we don't quite get that, then the blood of Jesus Christ won't be that big of a deal. But the blood has been significant, huge. It's probably one of the main themes that goes out throughout the Bible. And um, we're going to start off, obviously, the first shedding of blood was in Genesis chapter 4. We talked a little bit about that last time, about Cain and uh, Abel. And what was going on there, what was really going on was an argument over uh, their acceptability, their offerings that they were offering to God. Uh, Abel offered the blood of a lamb, 
as prescribed and required by God. And of course, Cain offered his um, fruit basket, his garden vegetables, which kind of represents or symbolizes works. So we have already in the very, very, very first discussion of acceptability and worship and how to worship God, we have the two components. We have the blood and we have works. We have grace and we have works because obviously the blood is nothing you can do. It's something you offer. Um, it's a being as opposed to a doing kind of approach to God. So let's just look at Genesis for a minute here. Uh, chapter 4, um, it says, uh, in the process of time, verse 3, 4, 3, it, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of fruit of the ground to the Lord and also brought, and i sorry, and Abel, verse, chapter, verse 4, Abel also brought of the firstlings of the flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel's Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. He looked down. He was depressed, droopy, whatever. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, you will, be, will you not be accepted? And if you do not will, do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you shall rule over it. Verse 8, now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? That famous line. And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. Now, interesting here, we have the problem that Cain thought his garden vegetables would be as acceptable to the Lord God as the offering of the blood. And because it wasn't, he was upset. And God warned him. God talked to him about that. God said, you know what? If you do what's right, if you do what I've asked, if you obey, it's going to be fine. It's going to go well with you. But I want to warn you that sin is crouching at the door. This this sin is an entity. It's not, you know, at, at, at this point, it has to be an entity because there's been no act committed yet. And so it was going to be activated. The sin of murder was going to be activated if Cable, uh, uh, Cable, a Cain did not get his, his, uh, his doctrine straight. If he didn't understand why the blood was more important and it could only be the blood and not his hard labor uh, offered as the vegetables or the fruits or whatever they were. And so, but Cain was angry with Abel. It wasn't really Abel's fault. Abel was just doing what he was told and he became an enemy to Cain. So Cain rose up and this entity of sin that crouched at the door overtook him and it began to, it, it put that thought into his mind, that anger, that murderous thought. And he rose up and took a stone and and, and killed Abel. He hit him, killed him. And then the, then the ground begins to speak to God. We have a voice in the ground. The, vo- the blood has a voice. All the blood that's been shed on the earth, all the innocent blood, all the wars, all the murders, all the violence, all of the blood has a voice because the life of that person is in their blood or that life of that animal, whatever it is, is in the blood. And so when the ground had to, had to be defiled by opening up its mouth to receive this spilt blood, which it had to do, um, because what else was going to do it? It had to open up its mouth. It began to cry out to God. And so that's where God, you know, mentioned your, your, the voice 
of your brother's blood cries out to me, and the ground is complaining. So basically, God said to, to Cain, now remember Cain's livelihood was through tillage of the fields. I mean, he was a, he was a gardener. He's a, a vegetable guy. He was a green thumb uh, farmer. And so God says, that's not going to work for you anymore. The ground is, sh- is closed off to you. It's going to bring forth nothing for you. Uh, no longer yield its, its strength to you. You're going to be a fugitive. You're going to have to make your living some other way. And so then um, Cain was freaking out, and he says, well, he says, you know, I'll be a, what's going to happen to me then? If somebody, you know, they'll know I murdered him, they'll come and kill me. And God says, no, I'll put a mark on you so that anybody kills you, um, lest, you know, you know, it's not going to happen because if they kill you, then they're going to have a sevenfold vengeance being taken on them. And so that was the beginning of the shedding of blood. And from then, it, never has, it has never stopped. It has never, ever really stopped. As we proceed through, um, we'll see, and as we talked about last week a little bit too, in Exodus about the Passover. But before we get to the Passover, which we know that story about the shedding of the lamb's blood and the blood that was put over the doorpost and the lentils to protect the people of God, the Israelites, the Hebrews, when the death angel was going to pass over to kill, take the, the life of the firstborn, of every animal, of every human that was not covered with the blood, so to speak, was not concealed or covered or protected or um, uh, protected by that blood covering. And so we see the power of the blood there, the power against death. But it had to be administered ad- administered in a certain very prescribed way. But before we get back to that with the details, let's look in Leviticus for a second, because here we have a bunch of prescriptions as they go through the desert. Um, <clears throat> and actually, Exodus will actually happen before they got into the desert. But they already had done the first Passover. And at that moment, then at midnight, the death angel came through. And the next day, they were released by Pharaoh to go out into the wilderness. And that began their journey of 40 years through the wilderness. But um, in Leviticus, as, G- as Moses is going back and kind of hearing from the Lord what this all means, um, in Leviticus 17, God gives him a kind of an interesting uh, hint. He says, um, when, in chapter, uh, let's see, 16, he's talking about when Aaron would come to offer this, the, the fire before the Lord and the sacrifices, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any, any old time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die. So he's saying it's very, the, the way you're going to approach me is got to be very prescribed, very, very detailed, very, the procedure is very, um, you know, set out, uh, established because of uh, this, the requirements here for holiness and protection. As we've, you know, um, we see that the blood that was shed in Genesis Again, in Genesis 9, going back there for just a minute, um, the, 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 the decree was the soul that sins shall die. That's Ezekiel 18.4. And in Genesis, it says, whosoever um, sheds man's blood by man, his blood will be shed. For, why? Because, for in the image of God, he made man. So man is precious. We're made in the image of God. Our blood is our life flow. It's the, it's the, key to our life and so therefore when someone kills someone or corrupts the image or defiles or assaults or attacks a man he's attacking basically in essence the image of God because we're made in the image of God and so this is a very serious offense and so God said the only way that this can be remedied is if the blood of that person who took the blood is also shed 
and that make and it says because we're made in the image of God. This also kind of puts down the idea that we're depraved and that we're, man is depraved. He, he, you know, you know, because we have a sinful human nature, which obviously was our second nature, which was imparted to us through the the work of the pit and the recyclological reconditioning of Satan as we fall into this place of uh, demonic influence and programming. But before that, we were made in the image of God, and that image of God is still in us, even when, he says, even after Adam and Eve uh, sinned and after, you know, uh, other people were generated on the earth, and this, this covenant was made with Noah, and he says, surely, verse uh, 8, 9 of chapter Genesis 9, 5, surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning, for the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of every man. For the hand of every man's brother, from the man, hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood will be shed. For, the, for in the image of God he has made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. So he's reconfirming uh, the image, the precious image of God, the preciousness of the blood. And then we see again why he you know, is so... Uh, endorsing, uh, reconfirming that in Leviticus. It's interesting. Why is this blood, it seems like, so important? And if it's so important to God, why is it so important to the devil? Well, because if you look um, uh, in Leviticus uh, 17, as you go on in that chapter where he talks about, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, so life equals blood, and I've given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls or for your sins. It is the blood that makes atonement for the soul because when the blood is shed, the animal's life is taken. It, requ- it satisfies the requirement that the soul that sin shall die. It's eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, blood for blood, you know, sin for sin. So he's, he's giving them this remedy. He says, verse 14, for it is the life of the flesh. Its blood sustains its life. Therefore, I said to the children of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is in its blood. Whoever eats of it shall be cut off. Now, this is an interesting side note that a lot of people, God is very serious about do not eat the blood of any animal or any, you know, uh, cannibalism. Do not eat the blood. Do not. He says, because you're going to be cut off, you're going to be cursed. Um, It's an abomination. And uh, a lot of people, even now they have this, you know, they make foods, various foods, and they, you know, sausages and things, and they put blood in it. So that is totally, um, I'm not a legalist, but that is totally something I would refrain from if I were you, because it's a very strong um, command in the, in the Old Testament. And of course, it goes back to the precious life, the life of the flesh is in the blood. And then he says, um, in, in chapter 17, verse 7, he says something very interesting. He says, and the priest shall spr- sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and burn the fat for a sweet aroma to the Lord. Verse 7, they shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons after whom they have played the harlot. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. So what was happening here is the pagans were also, Satan was requiring blood and the pagans also were offering blood to their gods animal blood, human blood. There's a lot of human sacrifices uh, that was were going on all through that generation previous to the flood, after the flood. I mean, everybody who wasn't of Abraham's seed and family, Hebrews and Israelites, they were all offering their, their children and blood sacrifices, he, paganism actually, to demons. 
And God says, don't do that. And here's why. Because um, when, when Satan basically craves the blood. This is why we have a blood war. This is why the war is over the blood. And, that, and Satan actually needs blood, the shedding of human blood or animal blood. Um, that's what fuels or empowers his kingdom. When we offer sacrifices, human or animal sacrifices to Satan, that one who offers that binds himself in that offering, um, in a contract, in an agreement with darkness. He's binding himself to Satan and Satan's kingdom through the offering of this blood. Their life is tied to the blood of their offering or their sacrifice. So therefore, um, their offering is given in place of themselves. So therefore, they are actually making a deal with the devil using the blood uh, to, to, to bind that contract or to seal, seal it in blood, so to speak. And so therefore, when people uh, practice witchcraft or get into, you know, the early, uh, even the early um, phases of witchcraft, there's oftentimes offerings and sacrifices. And people don't understand that those sacrifices don't have to always be dark, made in the, in the, on the new moon or the full moon in the dark woods with a, with a, you know, a, a, an altar and a sacrifice. And, a, and a, a, many of those uh, blood offerings are made um, as you would never suspect uh, through sudden deaths, through um, suicides and things like that, through accidents where people's lives are taken. And so Satan is requiring blood, but he has an agreement ahead of time to do that um, somewhere. And that is empowering his kingdom. I know we do not think in those terms, but these are the terms that God and Satan think in. And this is why God says, don't offer these sacrifices to demons. And so that's why when you go into deeper into Leviticus, you find out there is such a strict prescription, uh, a very elaborate and strict set of uh, prescriptions for where the location is to be, the procedures for, for the sacrificing to the Lord. And it's to be done on an altar that's sanctified to the Lord in the holy place only. In the, in, in the early days, it was the tabernacle. Later, it was the temple. So it would not be or could not be uh, claimed by or mistakenly offered to the demons. The demons couldn't claim this offering because it was made absolutely very strictly under the, the ordinances of what God had told Moses. Um, so we, the blood was being offered and shed uh, in, in the prescription in obedience to what God had told them to do. So that's why so much of the Old Testament, especially the book, the book of Leviticus, is very, uh, I don't know, we would call it kind of gory, I suppose. But it's, it's about the sacredness of life and the atonement. Uh, for example, in verse 16, chapter Leviticus 16, he says, um, atonement, um, well, there was atonement made for the, taber- t- for the tabernacle, for the priest, for the people, um, just to make things clean, to make things, to reclaim, reset uh, the cleansing of the blood of the lamb over the people of God. Because Satan was also right there to grab and, compl- and claim anything that was not offered in obedience to God and under the prescription. Um, Let's see, verse 16 of of 16. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting. And this is um, to make atonement for the holy place, to make atonement for the people, um, to sanctify it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. So constantly there was sins being committed, uh, offenses, um, transgressions against the law, the commandments. And so every year there had to be a cleansing, a rest, a resetting of their, 
of their holiness, of their sanctification. And so every year they brought the, you know, the Day of Atonement, whatever they had, the blood of the Lamb, they brought those things in to make the, the uh, to reconcile, um, to sanctify, to set apart, to redeclare their allegiance to God. And the whole Old Testament is full of slaughter and bloodshed. And why and how does this connect with the blood of Jesus Christ? Well, in the shedding of Jesus' holy, innocent blood, we see the final culmination. And, and all of this blood, including the very first uh, uh, Passover, where they were given very detailed prescriptions, descriptions, directions on what to do with the lamb. You know, they had to pull out a lamb that was uh, set it aside for four days, make sure it had no spot, no blemish, no... Uh, and they had to then kill the lamb. There was, it could not be boiled. It could not be eaten raw. It had to be roasted and full, complete whole, head and all. And then at the end of that feast, they had to eat it all in one basic day. If there was any left over, they had to burn it. And no bone of the lamb could be broken. This all kind of shadows that Jesus' bones were not broken. He was a whole lamb of God hung on the cross. Um, and it just and his blood was all poured out. And it marked forever our, our atonement, our deliverance for whosoever will. And so, but this was a very powerful image of what was to come. You know, going through even the story in the wilderness, we come to another very interesting situation. There were many situations in the wilderness which um, kind of foreshadowed what was going to happen. But uh, with the cross, remember the time that they were um, all being, they were murmuring, they were complaining. Uh, it had gotten hard. There was no food. There was no water. And they were complaining to Moses. And um, they began to be struck down with um, uh, the fiery serpents. The serpents began to bite after them. Uh, that's Numbers 21. And the, um, the people were being afflicted because uh, they had grown discouraged. They had bega- began to murmur. Uh, they spoke against their leader. They spoke against Moses. And the Lord permitted this, the serpents to come. Um, now, why did he do that? Why doesn't God just be a little more patient and let these things just kind of play out? Well, because he, because if the enemy comes in at any juncture, which we know from Job, and we know from the story of Abraham in the book of Joshua uh, and, and Jubilees, we know that Satan is just right there to, to kind of scrutinize behavior, look for disobedience, look for any fault, look for any way that he can present his case against the people of God. And of course, these were the treasure. The children of Israel were the treasure. They were the, the people of God. Now, they were what Satan wanted. He already had everybody else kind of locked up in his little, in his fist, and they were already his slaves. But these were free. Abraham's children roaming through this desert under the influ- counsel and, and leadership of Moses and, and the Holy Spirit were a, were a, de- a deadly threat to Satan's uh, plan to destroy the head crusher. He did not want this head crusher to come, and he knew the head crusher would have to come out of this tribe, out of this select group of people that had been sanctified and set apart through circumcision. Now, circumcision was only a sign of the promise. Abraham was, was called righteous by God, not because of any shedding of blood, but because he believed the promise of God. And so he was that, that was attributed to him for righteousness. And so, um, but these people were uh, called apart, set apart. So the sign of that promise or that deal that God made with Abraham was the circumcision. That's not what the deal, the de- that wasn't the deal. That was just the sign of the deal. That was just the, uh, I don't know, 
the sign. Like you have a wedding ring on, it's a sign of your wedding, your marriage. It's not your marriage. It's just a sign of it. And so, but people later on in Jesus's day, they were all hung up on circumcision and that's what makes you righteous and holy. No, no, no. It's not the act of circumcision or any of the particular laws. At that point, Jesus was now transitioning into uh, the New Testament and the Testament written in his blood. But up until that time, the blood of the lambs was very important and the way they were offered was very important. The time, the seasons, the feasts, all for purposes, very specific purposes. And so the, um, that was offered for the sin to, and, and to keep people, uh, from uh, protect them from Satan's claim to lay claim to them. So back to what happened in uh, the wilderness with the serpents biting them at the point where they were disagreeing and disobeying Moses and, and murmuring against God, Satan would have obviously come to God and said, look, God, they're not wanting to follow you. They don't like what you got to say. They don't want to do this. And so therefore, I have a right. I have a right to punish them. And, you know, God couldn't disagree because the fiery serpents were then released. At, I'm sure Satan had to get permission, but he had his point and God is just. And God says, oh, very well, you know. But, but God also knew what he was going to do. God was going to use this. Every time Satan tries to do something, and he does, and something looks really bad in your life, in anybody's life, always wait because God has got a response. There, every, you know, all things work together for good. What looks bad in the beginning, God is using it for good. And so what looked really bad, these people were dying and many people did lose their lives. But at that point, God told Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to lift up a pole so everybody can see and put a brazen or a bronze serpent on that pole. Just one, not two like we have in the medical community today. One, that's kind of the sign, the symbol is actually that that is the ser- serpent in the wilderness. And and all they had to do, they, did, they didn't have to offer any sacrifices. They didn't have to cut themselves with knives. They didn't have to even say a prayer. They didn't have to confess. All they had to do to be free from the death of those stinging serpents was to look and live. Look to the pole. Look to that pole represented the cross and the serpent on that represented Jesus Christ, who was to become the curse, to carry the curses for us that we might be free from the curses. So the serpents were what was biting. They were the cursed object. And now Jesus himself took on the sin and they were being bitten because of the sin. Now Jesus became sin for us that we might be set free. But they didn't know all that. All they knew was what Moses told them. And Moses says, if you look, if you acknowledge that this is your your healing, your salvation. If you obey God and trust God, this is all you got to do. Look and be healed. How hard is that? And notice there was no uh, EMTs, no medical interventions that were made here. Only the obedience to God, which tells us that the whole affair was a very spiritual, uh, uh, it was spiritual warfare. It wasn't, and it was afflicting their bodies, obviously, but nothing has changed. Everything is, is basically the bottom core of, of whatever it is. It is a war between God and Satan for the souls of men. That's what spiritual warfare is. And so when they looked, that was their agreement. That was their bending of their knee, whatever, to acknowledge their transgression. And at that point, Satan lost his power over them. So they were again at that point then in agreement with God. And when we sin today, when we get tricked to murmur, uh, complain, or disobey, which obviously we all have done, um, God says, here's what you do. Look to the lamb. Confess your sin. Acknowledge that it was a sin. Acknowledge that you got tricked. Acknowledge that that was uh, 
you know, repent, turn, change your mind, that that was a, a lie you believed, that that was a sin you did, that, that you're acknowledging when you confess that I sinned, God, you're right, you're holy, you're just, and I got tricked. And so when you confess this, and it's humbling, it's humbling, but, but you know, what, what good is pride going to do for you against God? There's nothing that's going to stand against God. Humble yourself and realize that the devil is out to get you, and he's the one who tricked you. And so we see there another type of the cross, a foreshadowing of the battle that was going to take place on Calvary. Then as we move on and through the, um, the, uh, the, the journey with Moses in the wilderness, and we see uh, the establishing of the tabernacle and the priestly tribe of Levi, the Levites and, and the sacrifices and Aaron, the priest, and all this stuff. You see a very regimented um, order of things. God is putting everything to order. And then as we go forward, we see um, that the, um, they, were, they were fine as long as they obeyed. This was the kind of, God gave them the Ten Commandments, and part of the Ten Commandments was this, this law. And as long as they kept the law at that time, the law was their protection because the law defined them. The law set them apart from Satan's uh, people and from Satan's. Satan didn't have a right to just go in there and grab anything he wanted because they were under the divine counsel protection of the almighty God. And so the law was a, a it, the law did two things. It actually identified them as a distinct people of God, God's people. And through the law and their obedience to the law, it protected them. So that they would not, uh, you know, if, this, if the accuser made an accusation against them before the Lord God, then they were um, found gu not guilty because they were in obedience. And so we also see then that as God went through in the book of Leviticus, and he also had some strong um, uh, remedies for the shedding of blood, like with the, um, the, the manslayer, the one who would go through and um, God set up cities of refuge for people who accidentally killed a man for the manslayer who was not a murderer. And so th these are very distinct and very uh, divinely ordered uh, prescriptions to protect people who accidentally killed someone. And uh, because otherwise the manslayer, the, the, the blood would be required. And I don't know if they had bounty hunters or whatever, but people who killed someone, the only remedy was for them, they themselves to be killed. Otherwise, the land itself would become defiled. Like we go back to Genesis, we see how the, the voice of the, of, the, of the blood cried out from the, the land, the ground, and the ground cried out to God. And we even see that in um, uh, Leviticus again, where it's uh, that, the sins, the sins of, of, of murder, bloodshed, and even sexual sins defile the land. Um, in, uh, let's see if I can see it. Um, uh, in chapter... 18 and 19 of Leviticus, it says, For the land is defiled, therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its, in, its inha inhabitants. Um, and he's talking in that chapter, verse 18, chapter 18, about all of the sexual sins, the sexual per perversions. For all of these abominations the men of the land have done, who were before you, and thus the land was defiled. So they're coming into Canaan. They're going to come into a land that had been filled with giants, bloodshed, cannibalism, uh, sexual perversion, ab absolutely no distinctions, crossing kinds, uh, every abomination of filth you can imagine. And it was totally demon infested. So the land itself had been covered with blood. Uh, and he says, now don't, don't do this because this, you're going to go into a dirty, unclean land. We have to re-sanctify it for all these abominations the men of the land have done 
who are before you, and thus the land is defiled, lest the land vomit you out also when when you um, also when you defile it, as it vomited out the nations who are before you. For whoever commits any of these abominations, the person who commits them shall be cut off from among his people. So, being cast out of the land. Notice, remember when um, the children of Israel were in Mo- in uh, Egypt, um, and it says so there's a verse, and I it says that the uh, the iniquities uh, of the of the of the uh, Canaanites was not yet complete, and so when it when it when it got to the full, that's 400, to 400 years. The children of Israel were not. I mean, they went down with Joseph and Jacob. They were gone for 430 years. 210 of those years, they were in severe servitude and uh, abuse and uh, building of the the cities and the whatever they built, and shedding of lots of blood and and enslaved. But so when they were going to, so the, chi- the children of Israel were now coming back to take back the land of Canaan because that was the original land that God had shown to Abraham and says, look, as far as your eye can see, this is yours. But it was all full of giants. And as we see when we get back to Joshua and the, you know, go in the, in the spies, it was filled with giants. But those were the guys who had been defiling the land with all of their demon sacrifices, all of their, um, their wickedness. Um, and so God was going to cleanse this land by bringing in a holy people. Uh, he says for um, in chapter 20, he says, and you shall be holy to me for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Um, then he goes on to add verse 27, a man or a woman who is a medium or who has a familiar spirits shall surely be put to death. They shall stone them with the stones. Their blood shall be upon them. So witchcraft, uh, shedding of innocent blood and sexual perversion are the three things that defile a man, defile a land, uh, cause people to be vomited out of their nation, their place, their home. Um, this is this is what happens. This you can't you can't get away from it. This is what happens. You jump off of a, a twenty foot, you know, skyscraper, twenty stories skyscraper. You will gravity will take over and you will fall to your ground and fall to your death. Uh, so there's just there's no getting around this. And so God was saying, this is what we have to do to protect yourselves from the devil and from his demands. Um, so that's that was a prescription. Uh, the blood was very precious, very important, but also very powerful, because if it was offered to Satan, as we were talking about, then Satan would get the benefits of the life of see this when you, when he when someone dies and, and, and they're offered to Satan, he gets their power, he gets their life. He gets the, the power of their life. He gets their lifeblood. And now think about all the power that has been given to Satan in these last days to rise up this final rally against God, to pull him down out of heaven and, and destroy God so that we, the demons actually, they're going to kill us too, by the way. Once they get done with us, they'll kill us. Um, that they can have what they want and they will want the earth for themselves because they don't want to be cast into the abyss, which is what they're worried, worried about. So how about if we take a minute here to take a break? And then we'll get back and look at the rest of what we have to talk about here today. Hey, we're back. So let's continue to look at what happened here in the, um, in the Old Testament. So we have the establishing of the law. We have the blood, the power of the blood. We have God protecting his children by giving them specific details on how to make their sacrifices so that they stand out. They're not being able to be claimed by Satan. Um, and we have... Uh, you know, obviously God is looking forward to, not looking forward to it, but looking towards the day when the sacrifice of his son will, you know, 
finish, finalize, complete the work of, of the atonement and all of these yearly sacrifices, daily sacrifices will be obsolete and unnecessary. So, and even, even uh, looking at, again, going back to Abraham for a minute and how these things just kind of line through, the line of the blood kind of trails through the uh, whole story that Abraham uh, was, <laughs> Satan tested Abraham uh, with, when God gave Isaac to Abraham after 25 years of prayer and promise and, fa- and faithfulness and believing. Um, and Isaac was given to Abraham then, after some time, Satan came before God and said, uh, this is written in the book of Joshua, by the way, but there's, there's, this is all, it, it's implicated in, um, implied, I should say, in, in the story of Abraham and Isaac, but uh, it's ver- the details are in these other books. So anyway, so Satan came before God like he did with Job, and he says, have you, and God says, have you seen my righteous servant Abraham? And again, Satan says, yeah, right, you know. You give him everything he he you, you've blessed him, you've spoiled him, you've given him everything he wants, you bribe him. And God says, You know what? I'm so confident in Abraham and his faithfulness and his love for me that even if I offered asked him to offer his son Isaac, he'd do it. And Satan said to God, Well, go tell him to do it then. <laughs> so, okay. So, you know, I, I know that God knew what he was doing. I know he didn't get cornered by the devil, even though the devil fell for this. The devil took the bait really is what happened. God set him up and he took the bait because God knew exactly what he was going to do and he, he knew exactly why he was doing this. So he went, God then uh, spoke to Abraham and said, um, I want you to take Isaac and offer him as a sacrifice um, and take him up to Mount Moriah. And basically Isaac and Abraham and two of the servants went with the, with the wood, with the fire, with no lamb, no offering, tore on a two or three day journey up into towards that destination of Mount Moriah. And at the base of the mountain, the two uh, servants stood behind, and God and Isaac went up the mountain. And but on the way, even on the way, according to the way the story goes in um, the book of Joshua, Satan now he he sees that Abraham is committed to obeying God. Now put this in your own life. This is how it goes. So Satan is going to test you to prove that God is wrong, to prove that you're unfaithful, to prove that. God isn't going to get the the love and the worship and the uh, loyalty that he thinks he has from you. And so, okay, so Satan has put tempted God, and that's why Jesus said to Satan in the wilderness, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. You know, you've been tempting my father long enough. You shall not tempt him. But Satan does that all the time. So he was tempting God, putting him in a hard place, but it wasn't a hard place for God, but it was going to be a hard place for Abraham. And so when Abraham was determined to obey God. Now, before he was determined to obey God, of course, and in your fiery trial, God may ask you to do something that looks absolutely ridiculous. Abraham could have said, God, did you lose your mind? How can this be that you would want me to offer my son to you like the the heathens are offering their sons to Moloch? How, How is it that you want me to offer? How does that look any different than what they're doing? You know, how does that make you any better? than them. So God's reputation is obviously on the line here in Abraham's mind. And yet Abraham and Job as well, they didn't really understand what was going on, but they were, they were believing enough, committed enough, uh, trusted God enough to go ahead and do what he said. And so Abraham is on his way. 
And as he's on this journey, Satan appears to Abraham as, a, as an old man who tries to talk him out of doing it. He's, he's you know, reasoning with him. You're, 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 you're crazy. How could this be God? I mean, you know, did you lose your mind? This is a young man. Why are you, this is not God. And so a lot of times on your way to do God's will, you'll have people who come by and say, well, this can't be God. Look at this. We've got reason. We've got religion. We've got rationalizing. We've got all kinds of things that try to talk us out of what we know is the Lord. And so we become double-minded or confused or hesitant. Then a second time the devil appeared, this time as a young man to Isaac, and he began to, to try to convince Isaac that he needed to get out of there, that his father was insane, that Isaac had his whole life before him and he doesn't want to, he, this is crazy. And so Isaac went and basically told Abraham, his dad, that this thing was, this young man was, you know, talking to him like this. And Abraham rebuked the young man. He rebuked the old man, too, that was talking to him. And they both vanished. And so then they were walking up the mountain. And all of a sudden, they were caught in this crossing of a river that was turning into a deluge. And they were being, they were drowning in this river. And Abraham said, wait a minute, there is no river on this road. And so he knew it was Satan. And he rebuked the river. And it said, at that point, Satan feared the voice of Abraham because he saw that Abraham had power and that God was protecting him. God was protecting and strengthening Abraham even to do what he'd commanded him to do, even when it didn't make sense. And so Jesus also, when he was going to the cross, very same parallel here. He was in the garden. He was sweating great drops of blood. He was losing his strength. If he would have died before he got to the crucifixion, which is exactly what Satan was trying to do, kill him before the crucifixion, then the crucifixion does not count. And so Jesus, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will. And God, the father had to send an angel to strengthen him, to protect him, to keep him from dying before he got to the cross. I know people don't think about that very much, but that is what happened. Go read about it. And so if Jesus would have died ahead of time, if Satan could have killed him, uh, just exhausted him, just sucked his blood out of him. Uh, and by the way, nobody who ever sweats great drops of blood, I don't forget the medical term, but none of them ever survive. But Jesus had to be strengthened to go to the cross, and he had to do that with a full mind. He couldn't go there delirious. And so we say, again, so on the way to offer Isaac, which is a type of Christ, a type of the Lamb of God, Isaac was to be the Lamb. But when Isaac said to his dad on the way up the mountain, well, where's the, where's the Lamb? Where's the offering? And, and the, Abraham's voice of faith said, said, statement of faith was, God will provide the Lamb or the sacrifice, or the offering. And so they just went up and proceeded and got to the point where Abraham, and now this is Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah, they tell us, is Mount Calvary. It is the same exact location. And that's very interesting because the blood of the lamb um, shed for the, from the foundation of the world had a strategic place in time, location in time, time in time, and was foreshadowed witnessed to, testified ahead of time by God through these, through this particular event. And so Abraham pulled up the knife and he's about to slay his son who's been tied to the altar. Uh, Isaac is willingly laid, laying there. Uh, this, at this point in time, Isaac is about 37 years old. That's what they, th they, they tell us in Joshua. So, and Jubilees. So he's there willing and God, and, and God has to send the angel of mercy to stay the hand of Abraham. Abraham was so ready to go through with it that he had to be stopped. And then he, he saw, his eyes were open, and he saw the ram that God had sent 
that had been obscured from and tied up in the thicket. Now, Satan had purposely tried to obscure the, the solution, the answer, the, the way of escape, because God is called the God of escapes. Satan had, had purposely tried to obscure that offering, that way of escape, until it was too late. But God, Abraham didn't see the way of escape. He was going to do what God said. God stopped his hands. God opened his eyes. God provided this ram that was fortunately um, tied up by Satan. So Abraham didn't even have to chase it down. And so that was a good thing. So then they went back and they had completed uh, the, the, the trial, the test. And also um, Abraham at that point became a friend of God because he is probably not the only, but at that point, one of the significant characters in the Bible who could really relate to the father heart of God who was going to have to watch his own son be sacrificed, having to put up his own son, not for adoption, but for crucifixion. And so, therefore, he became, they had a sweet, tight bond that never would, would be broken. Um, now, so we see that the blood is, is incredibly important, the line of the blood, the blood of the lamb. We also see that in Psalm 22, another uh, foreshadowing of that death of Jesus Christ on the cross uh, and Satan, of course, trying to obscure, you know, defile, uh, do everything he can to use any event against God and against the people of God to find fault. Um, in Psalm 22, we have the story of the uh, a Psalm of David, and it, it, it's telling the very specific details of, of, the, of the cross. It starts out, verse 1, 22, 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is one of the exact words, statements that Jesus made dying on the cross. So he's, he's starting this in sync with Psalm 22. In, it's like you're lining up the voices. You're in sync with what's like, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so, so far from helping me and from the, voids, the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime but you do not hear in the night seasons and I'm not silent. So Jesus Christ himself knows what it's like to feel like you're abandoned. You're not heard. God is not with you in the daytime, in the night. Um, but he stops himself immediately. He's not sinning. He's just, just in his soul. His soul is crying out. This is what our souls do. Why are you so downcast within me? Oh, my soul, David would say. Um, but you are holy who inhabit the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted in you, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not sh ashamed. Both the father and the son here are going through the emotional drama, trauma, terror, dread, fear, not, not as we understand fear, but the emotional pain of uh, having to go through with this. Jesus had said in the garden, um, not my will, but thy will, nevertheless. You know, if this cup can pass from me, if you found another way, if there's another way to make this blood atonement for sin, the soul that sin shall die, if there's another way to rescue the human race, if you found one that you haven't told me about yet, I'm asking now, did you find anything? And then he says, nevertheless, you know, not what I want, but what you want. And we'll look more into that, into that probably next week. But so he's, then he goes back and recounts that God took him out of the womb. God made him to trust him um, from his birth. Um, he's, you've been my God. Uh, do not be far from me. Trouble is near. There's none to help me. I'm poured out like water. The bulls of, have surrounded me, the bulls of Bashan. Um, the, the raging and circling hatred of the mobs, the crowds, 
My heart is like wax melted within me. My strength is dried up. My tongue clings to my jaw. Um, The dogs surround me. They've pierced my hands and feet. They've counted all my bones, but none of them are broken, as, you know, in reference even to the Paschal Lamb. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. They exactly did this. These kinds of prophetic words uh, are to anchor in place the, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ as a prophetic, not an accident, but a planned event. And that was prophesied years and years. This was prophesied by David thousands of years before it happened, um, or at least a thousand years, let's say. And so um, he's, he's despised, uh, afflicted, uh, uh, hated, um, deliver me, my precious life from the dog. Um, and so he's, he's saying, uh, in the end of this time, he's saying, but um, because of this, um, you know, you are going, all the end of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the fathers, families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. So he was seeing ahead of time that this was going to be the the work of the cross. David was prophesying this, um, that this was the work of the cross. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, it says um, that Jesus Christ, um, in bringing uh, all of us to salvation, it says in chapter 2, verse 14, that indeed as much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. So flesh and blood, he was truly man, truly God. He truly didn't have any advantages down here because he was the son of God, you know, sent from heaven, knew where he was. He didn't have any any advantages. He didn't get lots of extra money. He didn't get lots of extra favors. He he had to work for 30 years, grinding it out in a, in a job, a, a very laborious manual job, he lived like a person on the earth, um, and in that he, but but he was being prepared as the Lamb of God. He himself likewise shared in the same in our flesh and blood. And notice, in this time period, in this thirty-three years that it took for Jesus to start from birth to go to the, to go to the um, cross, Satan had every day, every minute of every day, every second of every hour, to tempt him, to try to crush him to try to get him to disobey God. And at any point, if Jesus would have done one thing that Satan had asked him to do, he would have been disqualified for dying for dying for our sins. He would have been a property of the, of the enemy at that point because the enemy, that's how he got Adam and Eve, by getting them to agree to a sin. And this is, would have made Jesus disqualified from becoming the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So it says... Um, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now, isn't it interesting if we're talking about why did Jesus have to die on the cross and this cosmic war between God and Satan that's all tangled up with the blood, the blood war, the cosmic battle over the blood, this is what it's all about. Satan had to be defeated, and the only way he could be defeated by was someone who lived and died and obeyed God, shed his blood, did not have sin upon him, and died as a lamb, of, as a lamb, a sacrifice lamb for the sin of the world to satisfy the soul that sin shall die, to satisfy the separation, to 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 qualify us, uh, to um, to close up to the sin separates us. So to satisfy what sin had done to separate us from God, 
Jesus had to die on the cross. Um, and for he, in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able also to aid those who are tempted. He was tested in all ways like us. He what that he might be a fitting high priest. He he says to the Father, I get it. I know it's it's hard down there. It's not easy. The devil's beating up on him constant, constantly. And it even says in Hebrews chapter five, which is another very interesting verse, verse seven, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, that would probably be a reference back to the Garden of Eden. I'm, I'm sorry, the Garden of Gethsemane. Yeah, Eden too, but strong prayers. It was a, yeah, it was a reference back to Eden because God said the head crusher will come. You will bruise his heel. This is Jesus being bruised. This is his pain and, and agony, agony in the garden. The devil was there crushing him, uh, however that would be in his heart, in his mind, in his emotions, in his endurance, in his dis- determination, stamina to submit to God the Father no matter what. Like with Job, Job says in the middle of his crushing and bruising, he says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Um, I know that my Redeemer lives. He is my salvation. They were talking about redemption and salvation, him, David, various ones. Even in the midst of what had not yet been done, even though we know that the cross was accomplished, Jesus died from the foundation of the world. The cross was, it was already done before it began, in effect, but it had to yet be completed in, in tangible earth years to become a solid uh, day means, means of atonement for uh, the, the human race. So he says, he cried, he strong, vehement cries, tears. Um, he was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a, a son, yet he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. And that's the same with us. We learn obedience. We demonstrate our obedience, our faithfulness to God. Really, obedience is the demonstration of our faith in God to believe what he says, no matter what it looks like or feels like. Obviously, if Jesus would have went what it looked like and went with what it felt like, he would have never went. And so so he learned obedience through the things he suffered. He, he already, you know, was perfect, but he his perfection, his, his wholeness, his righteousness, his holiness was um, proven. It was de- declared, demonstrated. Uh, and having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all those who obeyed. Um, so he was, he was perfect, but his perfectness was proven in his faithfulness and his willing to, willingness to suffer and to be obedient no matter what. So that is kind of where the, the devil bruised Jesus and, say, and, and Jesus crushed his head. So we see a lot of the war that has gone on um, in the, the pre-setting pre, uh, this event um, to make it for us in these very last days a, a, a way of atonement. Um, and just going to wrap this up with a couple of awesome scriptures that are in Galatians and Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says, um, verse 4, as I was referring to, um, what start verse three, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. And it's true that um, Jesus said it too, 
but it's referenced in um, Isaiah and various other places in the Old Testament that this death on the cross was not just to save the Jewish people or the Hebrews or the Israelites. It was for other flocks, other sheep I have from other flocks that would be added. That would be the Gentiles who'd be grafted in. So Jesus didn't just die for one nation or one set of people, one ethnic group. He died for whosoever will. So we were all predestined um, to the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ. So we were predestined to be brought back in, grafted in, brought back into the family of God if we wanted to. So the salvation, gift of salvation is a free gift. Very, uh, There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's only one thing you can do to have it, and that is to accept it, receive it, uh, acknowledge it, and allow God at that point to be your God and to give up chasing after the idols of self and your own ambitions and um, you're, and, and bowing down and being a servant to fear. Um, Colossians 1 says that he delivered us from the powers of darkness. Um, and this, again, goes back to the cosmic war and the blood that was had to be shed. Um, chapter 1 of Colossians, verse starting with verse 20. Um, well, let's start with verse 13. Um, let's see. He has delivered us from the power of darkness he being Jesus, and translated us into the kingdom, well, he being God, into the kingdom of the son of his love, in whom we have redemption through, the, through his blood and forgiveness of sins. So he, God, delivered us from the power of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, the claims darkness had on us, the claims Satan had on us that we were his slaves because of the sin and the iniquity and the many, many confirmations and agreements that we have made as the generations proceed with the darkness, with fear, with guilt, but we have been delivered from that and translated or transferred, transfer kingdom, ownership, citizenship, translated us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood. Through his blood, we have redemption. Redemption means to buy back. That was the price. The blood of Jesus Christ was the price that was demanded for payment for the souls of men to be bought back. And those, that the, the, it was good for whoever. It was a completely finished work, and whosoever, however many wanted to, I mean, a thousand, ten thousand, ten million, seven billion, however many wanted to accept that blood of Jesus, the death of Jesus as atonement for their sins, as the purchase price for their for their freedom, they could have it. They just had to ask for it. They didn't have to be rich. They didn't have to pay anything. They didn't have to uh, do any super sacrifices. They didn't have to cut themselves with knives and live live a life of you know penance and whatever they just had to accept jesus and follow him very simple satan has made the gospel of jesus christ very complicated full of self-help self-improvement work stress striving never good enough condemnation guilt and defeat now obviously many people who are living a very defeated life very feeling christians believers in jesus christ who do not know the this the the, the depth of their freedom or their deliverance or their healing are being absolutely smashed, crushed, uh, ripped to shreds, if you will, by Satan because of his hatred of them. But they may still very, very well, if they've accepted Jesus Christ, though they are being crushed in this world, Jesus has kept his commitment to them. And their salvation is in him, not in, you know, failing to be perfect uh, or, or, or keep having to be perfect or, or failing to be perfect. Our salvation is in the, in the word of God, in his, his confirmation, his uh, commitment that he's made to us. 
that we will go forth um, as that chosen race, as that as the the, the people of God, uh, delivered from the powers of darkness, translated into the kingdom of His dear Son. Um, and by and in verse twenty, he says in chapter one of Colossians, that to, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself. So remember, in the cosmic war, everything was broken, everything was crushed, and now Jesus comes not only to die to redeem the humans. Um, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your minds by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable in his sight. So this is the ultimate end of the cosmic war uh, to reconcile, redeem, and restore the creation of God. So we want to thank you today for joining us, and we're going to pray, Father, that this huge, awesome sacrifice, love, gift, uh, your, um, your abiding presence with us in the midst of this war will encourage each one today to be strengthened in your mind and not to go grow weary, to know that this is more than them. It's more than just their little life. It's not just about us. It's about you, but it was about us. You wanted us back and you love us. And the, the least that we can do, the best we can do, the only thing we can do is to love you back. And so I pray, Father, that you give us the courage to praise you, worship you, not to fall for the lies of the devil, no matter how enticing, no matter how intimidating, no matter how much pressure he puts on us to give in, that you will strengthen us, Lord God, to be strong strong and faithful and stay true to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. I have an emergency. What is your location? Because there's a war for your soul.